Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 137, and there are a couple of things to take care of today. First, we join General Jan Smuts, who's been waiting in Cape Town for the British to lay on a train to take him inland, where he will join the Boer political and military leaders at Vereniging for a conference starting on May 15th. Smuts was mostly silent while he waited with his brother-in-law, Kricher, and Denise Reitz, our narrator. They were placed aboard the warship HMS Monarch in Simon's time. Just to set the record straight, I said last week this was an Orion-class battleship, but of course it was just a normal warship, as her namesake was only launched in 1910. My apologies, but a quick description about both is in order. The Monarch was placed as guardship in Simonstown Port in 1900. This was one of the older vessels in Britain's Navy, having been launched in 1868. It was also a symbolic vessel for Smuts, Reitz and Kricher to find themselves because the design was neither modern nor old. Built in the 1860s when sail was giving way to steam, wooden hulls were being replaced by iron, smooth-bore artillery firing round shot had been overtaken by rifled shell-firing cannon, and heavy armour was being mounted on the sides. Mounted gun turrets were being mooted by the Navy at the time, but others more conservative opposed the upgrade. So... HMS Monarch I was a compromise and therefore pleased no one. When it was built, the Navy said steam engines were still not reliable enough, so HMS Monarch was built with both engine and sails. That prohibited the gun turrets from being able to fire forward, so in all intents and purposes she remained a man of war, like the old wooden battleships of the 18th century. After her renaming in 1902 as the HMS Samoon, after Simon's done, the Royal Navy launched its new Orion-class dreadnoughts and the more modern HMS Monarch appeared in 1910. As an aside, Monarch fought in the Battle of Jutland in 1916 and her shells damaged the German dreadnought SMS Kunig. So back in Simonstown, Denise Reitz, his general and the general's brother-in-law waited for their train. At length, orders came for us to go north. We were rowed ashore after dark to a landing stage below the Simonstown railway station and taken to a train that was standing nearby. They were hurried through the suburbs of Cape Town in the dead of night, so that no one would catch sight of the famous General Smuts. Then they switched trains at the main line at Salt River. The next day they awoke in Mikey's Fontaine in the Karoo. Yeah, General French came to see us, a squat, ill-tempered man whom we did not like, although he tried to be friendly. Lord Kitchen had asked French to pump Smuts for information and he spent an hour trying to draw smuts with what Reitz called clumsy questions. It was then that French dropped his tough British officer act and became more amenable, and he and smuts spoke more naturally about their experiences in the war, and French told us how narrowly we had miscapturing him that night below the Stormbergen. If you remember, it was a moment where the train passed smuts's commander at night. They could see into the carriage, General French and his officers were toasting each other with wine. Both sides missed each other at that moment. The British wanted to make sure that Smuts's journey would not be an occasion for any public relations and kept him inside the train during the day, travelling only after sunset. From Mikey's Fontaine we continued our journey, travelling at night only, an armoured train puffing ahead all the way, its searchlights sweeping the felt. Each day we were sidetracked at some lonely spot until dark, and thus made slow progress. It was suggested later that Kitchener was purposefully slowing Smuts's movement north to help the Transvaalers make their final decision to stop fighting. 
That's a bit of a long shot. The Transvaalers were on their last legs, as these warriors from the Cape were about to find out. The Transvaalers were all for hens-hopping, except for De La Rey, who continued to vote with the Free State leadership like General Christian de Bet and President Steyn. These bitterists of bitter enders were still leaning towards death or glory. But for neutral observers, had they continued fighting, betting on death would have been the smart money. It was the better part of a week before the three Boers arrived in the northern Free State town of Kronstadt, where Lord Kitchener was set to meet Smuts. Soon after our arrival, he rode up to the station on a magnificent black charger, followed by a numerous suite, including turban pathans in eastern costume with gold-mounted scimitars. That was typical of Kitchener, who wanted very much to be made Viceroy of India following his stint in South Africa. Kitchener had also been very busy. Behind the Boers' backs, he told Louis Boerter that the Liberals would almost certainly win the next election in Britain within two years and that the Boers would probably be granted self-government at once. It wasn't that simple as we know now, but it was a masterstroke from the rather blunt commander-in-chief of British forces in South Africa. Kitchener was adapting his tactics depending on which Boer leader he was addressing confidentially. He met each privately and Smuts was no different. Kitchener worked extremely hard to convince Smuts during their Kronstadt meeting that he had ordered his army to go easy on the Boers, still in the felt. Remember, the British had refused to declare an armistice while the Boers discussed peace, but Kitchener had told his officers to stop all columns and attacks on the Boers. This was to save British face, because there was no way the Secretary of State for War, Broderick, would have accepted leniency when it came to ending this war. The Boers must feel the British power, but Kitchener knew they must not feel squeezed to death or they'd not stop fighting. This showed Kitchener was far better at strategic negotiations than most have given him credit, and one which I said previously was quite a surprise because up to now he had regularly committed egregiously clumsy acts during the war. As I explained in the start of the series, his inability to organize a massive army logistically during the march towards Pretoria had left some of the army in a shambles. And yet, here he was, just over 18 months later, planning like a fox. The safe conducts he issued were many, allowing the Boers free movement to meet on May 15th. So, after riding up on his black charger, Lord Kitchener dismounted, leaving his bodyguards outside to meet with Jan Smuts. Reitz and Kricher were also present. He was anxious to bring the war to a close, for he referred again and again to the hopelessness of our struggle, telling us that he had 400,000 troops in South Africa against our 18,000. Kitchener explained the terms, which, given the Boers' position, were fair. Boers could keep their horses and saddles in recognition of their brave fight, said Kitchener, and the British government would help rebuild the destroyed farmhouses. The burning of which he defended on military grounds writes rates bitterly. Smuts told Kitchener that he had unfairly executed the Boers in the Cape, whereupon Kitchener fired back that they had been shot for wearing British khaki uniforms. If you remember, Smuts himself had a Boer turncoat called Lambert Colain executed, so he wisely discontinued that line of argument. Before Smuts was to attend the meeting on the 15th in Vereniging, Kitchener explained that he wanted the general to head to meet with General Louis Boerter, who was now back in the eastern Transvaal. It was the final phase of the selection of representatives. 
would then head to the Vaal River town of Vereniging where they would ultimately vote on the future of the Boers. Accordingly, from Kroonstad, still escorted by an armoured train, we crossed the Vaal River into the Transvaal. After so many months, Denise Reitz was home, but he was grappling with his own demons from the war, and although not yet 21, he was determined that he would not kowtow to the British. It was an odd journey for this youngster heading towards the inexorable surrender while mentally fighting every step. We went through Johannesburg at night until we came to the town of Standerton, where we left the train and travelled by cart along a blockhouse line that ran straight over the highfield. They had travelled north, then southeast, in order to pass Standerton. But no Boers saw them. There was no welcoming committee set up in Kroonstad or in Johannesburg. A small group passed anonymously in the night. Instead, it was the curious British trooper, Tommy Atkins, who saluted them on their way. At intervals, there were small English camps, at each of which the troops turned out and treated us with courtesy. Smuts is being waved along the line of soldiers who recognize honor and courage. It took nearly two days before they reached a point on the road where a party of Boer horsemen could be seen waiting for Smuts. General Louis Boerter had sent a welcoming committee. They brought us spare horses, so we left the cart with the troopers and, striking across country, travelled for two days over bare and deserted plains to the place where the general was expecting us. Three hundred men of the Eastern Transvaal Commando awaited their hero from the Cape. They had gathered in order to choose the representatives, which would then be sent on May 15th to Ferenikum. But the sight that greeted Smuts, Reitz and Kricher was disturbing to say the least. Nothing could have proved more clearly how nearly the Boer cause was spent than these starving, ragged men, clad in skins or sacking their bodies covered with sores from lack of salt and food, and the appearance was a great shock to us. Their spirit was undaunted, but they had reached the limit of their physical endurance. The end was near. If these haggard, emaciated men were the pick of the Transvaal commandos, then the war must be irretrievably lost. There was no welcoming banquet. On the contrary, General Buddha himself had only a few strips of leathery bulldog to offer us. That was only because the Boers had recently raided British cattle, or they'd have nothing at all. Had they not secured even that small scrap of meat, the delegates would not have been able to gather to select their representatives at all. This war of almost three years had left the strongest suffering from scurvy, the women and children dead in camps, and the British in control of South Africa. Rates realised with a jolt it was all over. So his mind naturally turned to his family. I inquired at once for news of my father and my three brothers. Boerter said Rates Sr. was riding with one of the northern commandos and would be at the Ferenikin conference. Of Rates's brothers, he knew nothing. So... Rates spent the next few hours walking amongst the Boer men, talking to them, until he found out that his eldest brother, Halmar, had been captured by the Australians more than a year before. His second brother, Joubert, was taken prisoner whilst lying ill of malarial fever in the Low Country. In fact, the British probably saved his life. That was shortly after Denise had last seen him in warm baths at the end of 1900. But of his youngest brother, Arndt, he heard nothing. Smuts and Boerter left the group of Boers to discuss the way forward, while the rest turned in early for the night. 
The next day, elections were held to select representatives for the talks. Even in adversity, the Boer instinct for speeches and wordy wrangling asserted itself, and the time was passed in oratory. By nightfall, the complicated process was complete. Thirty delegates to represent the Eastern Transvaal had been selected. They spent one more night together, and then the next day, all members of the commando dispersed. The men riding off on their hungry-looking horses to rejoin their distant units. Generals Boerter and Smuts, along with the delegates, headed back along the English blockhouse line. And there, once more, the British troopers stood to attention for the ragged representatives. Lines of men in their pressed khaki uniforms flanking the road, eager to finally cast an eye on the ghost of the felt. The British also fed Smuts, Rates and Kricher, who were now famished. And it was time to head to Vereniging to join the peace talks. We'll return to the next phase of the talks in a fortnight. Meanwhile, it's time to rejoin Boer spy Johanna van Barmelo once more. She asked and was given permission to visit Irene concentration camp outside Pretoria. If you remember, she'd worked there as a nurse months before when women and children were dying at a rate of up to a dozen a day. At the end of April 1902, Johanna was finally allowed to visit Irene and dreaded what was awaiting her there. We found the camp shifted to a new location and tremendously improved in every respect. There are 2,300 children under 16, and they look brown and healthy and happy. In fact, I noticed the same air of contentment and prosperity all over the camp, she wrote in her diary on the 30th of April, 1902. I found a great many of my old friends, and I was made more than happy by what they told me of their present treatment. After the horror of the last year, up to 30,000 white women and children and 36,000 black women and children had died in these camps, things had changed radically. We had a fine dinner in one of the tents. Good meat, stewed with potatoes, carrots, rice with raisins, beetroot salad, bread and coffee. The camp grew its own vegetables. They had milk, syrup, flour and more than enough frozen meat. Children were being fed an additional mug of good broth once a day, and more than enough ideal milk than they can use. It's odd to think that in South Africa today, ideal milk remains an important tinned food in our country. But the concentration camp inmates' clothing was threadbare. The tents were showing signs of age, and yet the women and children were happy, and the death rate had dropped to almost zero. For that, they can thank Emily Hobhouse, whose urgent action in England had raised the consciousness of people there, and the Fawcett Commission, sent by the British Army to supposedly show how well things were going, and who contradicted the military by declaring that the situation in the camps was, in fact, dire. Back in Irene, there was a church service, which was attended by the camp commander, a Mr. Bruce. He was much loved by all the camp inmates, according to Johanna. They seemed to adore him. Johanna and her mother were introduced as Boer heroes, Remember, both had been sneaking secret letters to the Boer leadership as spies. They, in turn, asked to be introduced to Mr. Bruce. He was charming to us, drove us all about the camp in his dog cart, showed us the hospital with its latest improvements, and did everything in his power to make our visit enjoyable. My, how times had changed. With hostilities effectively over, men and women were courteous and respectful of each other across the psychological barrier Enemies putting aside their differences for what's known as the 
big picture. It was time to think about the future and what form the new country would take. But it was at this point that Johanna van Weimler lost her faculties. She clearly had a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. A few days later, in early May 1902, she suddenly attacked her mother and friend Lina. It was all about her lover in the Netherlands. Lord Kitchener had refused to allow Johanna permission to travel to Europe to meet him, and finally, after nearly three years of self-control, she snapped after a little argument with her mother. I flew in it to a rage, insulted the mother, and Liné sprang up, sent my cup and saucer crashing to the floor, rushed about the room, uttering shriek after shriek and pummeling the sofa and cushions. It must have been something terrific, but I know nothing about it, until I found myself pinned in Liné's arms and my face and head dashed with cold water. She continued to scream in Dutch, Mama Liné, ik is gek geworden. Oh, ma, ma, Lene, I've gone crazy. Eventually, she howled herself to silence and was tucked up in bed. As an entire country began to take a deep breath, scenes like these were playing out in many homes. In some places, mothers and fathers were to be reunited with their children. In many cases, there were no children. They had died, and the father was disabled from his war wounds. In others, they waited for news about the peace talks, their faces deadpan as they hid their mental torture from the world. And yet, the path to peace was uncluttered by the bodies of the dead. The fighting had all but ceased. So next week, preparations for peace continue. As with other negotiations, the devil's in the detail, as you'll hear. A quick thank you to Peter, who said he listens to the podcast while traveling to work in London, a South African far away. Be safe in this time of virus, Peter. And to John for picking up mistakes, please keep it up. I've tried to be as historically accurate as possible through this series. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, or you can send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Een zonder gedaan langs die moeier die ze valt, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Marais. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom.